You've come close to the end of the longest day of practice. I was thinking earlier of this uh, quotation from this great theologian named Howard Thurman who said, look at the world with quiet eyes, which I just loved, actually. Look at the world with quiet eyes. I wanted to name a book I had written that, but the publisher didn't like that. They said no one would understand it. But normally, you know how we are, we're so fevered, we're so defensive, we want to know what's going to hurt us, we want to know what we can get, that I think of myself and and the rest of us walking around as though we were one of those cartoon characters with our eyes out on springs, you know? Like we're very out there. And the process of meditation is so much one of coming back, just settling back, being with, not to the point of being inert and and passive and, and cut off, but because from that place of balance, of, of not being so caught in the habits of our mind, we have the chance to make some choices to see if we are responding according to the things we really care about or if we're just caught in some cycle of habitual reaction. The word in the, the Pali language, again, the, the language of the original Buddhist text, is a word I like a lot because I think it's one of those words that sounds like what it means. And the word is papancha, and it means proliferation. I think it sounds like popcorn, you know. Uh, it means proliferation. And as one translator I once heard describe it, uh, here actually, he called it the imperialistic tendency of mind, <clears throat> where something happens and the whole world is taken over. My favorite story of that actually is this time I was teaching with Joseph. Uh, Goldstein somewhere, and we were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea when somebody who'd been sitting came into the kitchen and said to Joseph, I just had a really distressing experience, and and he seemed quite shaken up. So Joseph said, what happened? And he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, I felt all this tension in my jaw, and I realized I've never been able to get close to people, and it's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he responded with some huge elaboration of a story, you know, about who he was going to be tomorrow and the next day and the day after and the day after. And uh, Finally, Joseph said something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's painful enough to feel all that tension in our jaw, but that's an authentic experience. On top of that is all of that projection and conject- projection and conjecture and 
imagination, you know, about how terrible it's going to be, and it's never going to change unless it gets worse. And, and so we create this um, entire seeming reality. One of the things we say in kind of meditation lingo is look for the add-ons. It's not that the tension in your jaw will go away necessarily, that you won't hurt anymore. But we suffer terribly from those add-ons, which have no substance except for what we've given them. So we practice being open, paying attention, seeing what's actually here, noticing that moment when we begin to build and add on as best we can. And sometimes we don't notice that moment till a long way down that track. But then we have the opportunity at that point to let go of all of that projection, that proliferation, to say, okay, this is what's happening right now. This is what it is. Sometimes we joke and we say, okay, here's a typical five or or 10 or 15 minutes in a meditator's mind. You know, you're sitting here minding your own business, feeling your breath or doing the metta phrases. And then you think, I wonder what's for lunch tomorrow. And you think, lunch today was really good. I wonder if they give out recipes at the end. That was a really, that was a good meal. I'd really like that recipe. And then you think, I think I'll be a vegetarian from now on. It's, you know, much more consonant with my moral values. It would be really good for my health. So, so now I'll be a vegetarian. And then you think, you know, it's hard to be a vegetarian unless you know how to cook because, you know, you can't always eat out and just have baked potatoes or something. You have to really know how to cook. So as soon as the retreat is over, I think I'll try to find the nearest bookstore and I'll go buy a whole bunch of cookbooks. And, and then you think, while I'm in the bookstore, I think I'll, you know, I'll check out all those travel books because, you know, when I have enough money and I want to go on vacation... And maybe I'll go to Mexico, or maybe I'll go to Canada, or I know, I'll go to India. Because after all, now I'm a vegetarian, and I meditate, you know, so what better place is there than India for me to go for my vacation? And in your mind, you're kind of walking down the streets of New Delhi or Bombay or something, and you kind of come to. And what's so amazing is that very often the last thing we can remember thinking is, I wonder what they're serving for lunch tomorrow. And then we're just sucked into this whole chain of association. You know, and that example was pretty harmless, but so many times it's so anxiety-ridden or um, fear-based or something is going on and we're just building it and building it and building it and building it. And we don't even know. That doesn't mean it's not affecting us. In fact, it's affecting us more because we don't know. And so shining the light of awareness is our primary goal. It's not that we're trying to cut off thinking. We can't anyway, even if we wanted to. Or we're trying to insist on only having beautiful and lovely thoughts. You don't know what's going to come up in your mind. But the way it's all held, the way we relate to it all, can be transformed into that sense of awareness, balance, loving-kindness. So this is how we practice, no matter which practice we're doing. 
to see what's going on without getting lost in this huge train of judgment and projection, to see it more closely to how it actually is, and to hold ourselves and our experience and ultimately others in that space of of care, of compassion, of loving kindness. In fact, the Buddha likened loving kindness to space. He said, I think quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So the example is likened to somebody standing here in the middle of this room and just throwing paint around in the air. There's nowhere for for the paint to land in the space. It doesn't matter at that point if it was a a very well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space isn't going to be marred. It's not going to be ruined by that color. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. It means open. Not resistant. Not blocking. But also not getting caught up in all of the gyrations that we normally get caught up in. This is in contrast to our our common sense that that metta or loving kindness or love, as it's sometimes translated, is more like a feeling or an emotion, which I always um, feel a little bit funny about because I think once we cast love as a certain particular emotion or feeling, then we're limiting it. We're putting it in a box. And anything outside of that box, we tend to denigrate and say, well, that's not good enough, that's not love, that's not real. And it often is a very big mistake. I think love is bigger than that and more open than that, has many more forms than that. And so rather than thinking of metta as an emotion or a sentiment, I think of it as a way of paying attention. Sometimes we get a great rush of warm feeling, and sometimes we don't. That doesn't mean the practice isn't working. My friends tell me they're putting this on my epitaph, and probably they will, Because it's the thing I say more than anything else, which is when you do metta practice, it doesn't matter what you feel. That doesn't mean there aren't times when there isn't very important feeling that happens. But even in times when there is no rush of emotion, it's okay. Something is happening through the power of inclining our minds toward connection, toward inclusion, toward paying attention. The first time I did metta practice, not Burma, but years before that, um, when I tried to do metta practice in a a sequential way, was here, the month that we moved in, in February of 1976. I knew that it was done by going through those different categories, starting with yourself and ending with all beings. And I'd always done it, you know, like I'd said, for an hour here or there, 
um, but I'd never done it in an intensive way. And even though I didn't have a teacher here to help guide me, because I knew the structure of it, the unfolding of it, I thought, okay, I'll just do it. And I was living upstairs in one of the rooms, and um, I spent a week just offering the phrases of loving kindness to myself, whether I was sitting or walking. All day long, I would be repeating, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, whatever phrases I was using. And I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. And then at the end of the week, something happened to some of us, um, something happened to somebody in our larger community in Boston. So some of us had to kind of abruptly leave the retreat, and I, I had to leave. So I was upstairs in one of the bathrooms getting ready to go when I dropped this big jar of something which broke on the tile floor. And the stuff went everywhere. It scattered everywhere. And I can remember the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. (laughs) And I thought, look at that. You could have given me anything in the course of the week, and I would not have been able to honestly say something was happening, but something was happening. Something was happening underneath the level that I normally associated with the feeling, the emotional tone, the sentiment of love. It's happening. And I can guarantee you it's happening. Not only do I have my own experience, but I have many, 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 many people's experience in which I've seen that. You know, so don't hook on to how it feels, but rather be as committed as you can to that gathering of your energy behind the phrases, being wholehearted, being present, being able to let go of distraction and begin again. That's really what is making the the practice progress. Sometimes when we even hear the word love, you know, it brings up so many different associations in our minds. We mean so many different things by it. Sometimes we really almost frankly mean a medium of exchange. No, I will love you as long as you love me in return and say so quite loudly or you follow um, you know, the following 15 conditions or something like that. I once used that example somewhere and somebody said, only 15? <laughs> you know, so however many our list is. I love you, I will love you as long as you get better. According to my timetable, according to my image of, of how you should be. And it's not that that state is, is bad or wrong or, or contemptible, but it's so dependent, it's so fragile. I mean, how often do we get exactly what we want in the timetable we're insisting on? Not often. How often do people stay under perfect control? without changing in any way. Not so often. So if that's how we're defining love, we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down according to the winds of change. And it's, it's very debilitating. Sometimes when we use the word love, we really mean a kind of sentimentality, which is actually a, a kind of ally of delusion. 
I know several of you have heard me tell about this time. Many years ago, I read an interview with a, a former beauty queen who was Miss Kentucky. Um, it was in Time or Newsweek or something. And many, many years after her reign, Miss Kentucky was asked what she had to say about life. And what she had to say about life was, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. You think about, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years of just smiling for the camera, completely meaningless, vacuous, not connected to one's inner state. And that, in a way, is kind of the fear sometimes people have about loving-kindness practice, that we will all turn into kind of Ms. Kentuckys, you know, that we'll have a lot of anger cooking or a lot of some very difficult emotion going on, but on top of it, we'll kind of play let's pretend, you know, everything's all right, and we'll just smile. And that um, we'll lose touch with a strength of purpose and, and a willingness to draw boundaries and insist on change. You know, people almost fear that they'll say, oh, well, you know, keep hurting me. It's okay, I'll just smile because I'm practicing loving kindness or keep on hurting that other person over there or acting in that unjust way. And I'll just smile because I'm practicing loving kindness. Whereas, of course, it's nothing like that. I think it's a a great commentary on our time and our society that our idea of love so often has degenerated into, into such a sense of weakness as though it makes us kind of foolish or, or weak and um, ineffectual, that we can't really be strong about what we feel needs to happen. We can't take care of ourselves. We can't protect others. Whereas, of course, it's nothing like that at all. It has to do, the factor of metta, the force of metta, has to do with how we are, what we see, what we believe about ourselves and what we're capable of, what we want, where we remember where true happiness is to be found and where we forget. It has to do with how many others we pay attention to. It has to do with our understanding of how connected we all are. Like an exercise I like to do very often sitting in front of a room full of people is just for a moment contemplating, okay, how many of us are sitting here together right now? It's obviously all of us physically here. But what if we included everybody who helped us get here in some way? They told us about meditation or they told us about this place or um, they gave us a poem or they played a piece of music or they're taking care of things at home so that we could be here. So what if we included all of them in our consideration of who is here? And what if we added all of the people in our lives who've really, really hurt us? Not just aggravated us, you know, or or were somewhat annoying, but the people who really brought us to an edge so that we almost felt, I've got to find another kind of happiness or another meaning of happiness. So what if we included them too? Because in some way they were influential in our being here. And the people who grew the food that we ate today, 
the people who made the clothing that we're wearing. If we really paid attention, we would sense just kind of the fabric of life, which is really represented here. It's quite big. It's not just limited to those of us who are sitting here right now. Now, All the influences and the relationships and the conditions and the encounters that are in some way sweeping all of us to this moment in time where we are together. That's the truth of our existence. That's not fanciful. That is actually how things are. However alone we might feel or cut off we might feel, we are part of this larger fabric. And so paying attention in this particular way to acknowledge that, to see that, is one of the greatest foundations of loving-kindness practice. It doesn't mean we like everybody, and it doesn't mean we approve of what everybody does, and it doesn't mean that we just acquiesce and say, oh yeah, do it more. But we know that no matter what, we are connected, that that's the truth of things. And these days, you know, we live in a time where Everything is pointing to that. Environmental awareness points to that. You can't do something over here without having an effect over there. Economics points to it. Everything is pointing to this truth. This is how things are. So we pay attention in a different way. Without so much of this strong sense of self and other and us and them and division and boundary that keeps us feeling so isolated, that keeps us feeling so alone and so cut off. We learn how to use our attention so that it's inclusive rather than exclusive. One of my favorite loving-kindness stories is about uh, my friend and colleague Sylvia Borstein, who was here teaching one year and then flew back to San Francisco where she lives and her plane stopped in Chicago en route to San Francisco and then took off again. So she tells the story about 40 minutes into that second flight after Chicago, the pilot got on the PA system and he said, now there's really nothing to worry about but we have a little problem with the hydraulic system of the plane. And rather than fly over the Rockies without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're just going to turn back. And he said, there's really nothing to worry about. The flight attendants will now instruct you in the position to take in the event of an emergency landing, and they will take away, come and take away all of your shoes and all of your eyeglasses and all of the pens out of your pockets, which I never understood until a flight attendant explained to me that that's what happens if they think you might have to go down an emergency chute because they don't want anything to tear or break. And so Sylvia sat there without her shoes, without her glasses, and she didn't know what to do. And then she thought, okay, I'll do metta. I'll do loving-kindness practice. And she decided to do it for those people she is closest to in her life. That's her husband her children, their partners, and her grandchildren. And she would go through that list, getting to her youngest grandchild, you know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. 
And when she got to her youngest grandchild, she began again with her husband and then just keep going through the list. So Sylvia also says that for some reason the pilot got back on the PA system every five minutes and said, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes. We're going to be landing in 30 minutes. We're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And every time she would hear him and then just go back to doing the metta practice in the way she had been doing it. And then the pilot got on the PA system and said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. At which point Sylvia thought, in five minutes I'll either be dead or I'll still be alive. And she says that when she went back to doing the metta practice, what she found in that context of maybe only having five minutes left to live was that she couldn't limit it to just those people in her life she was so close to. She found that the only way she could do loving-kindness practice with maybe only five minutes left to live was for all beings everywhere. No one left out. And so she did that for five minutes. She said when the plane landed, it was a landing like any other landing, and they fixed whatever was wrong in the hydraulic system, and then they took off again, and she got to San Francisco. The reason I, I like the thought of that story is because I really like that sense of that moment when she just couldn't, because there was nothing phony or false about it. It wasn't like she was sitting there thinking, well, I don't really feel like sending metta to everybody, but you know, I am a Buddhist meditation teacher, and what if anyone ever found out you know, that <laughs> like, I maybe only had five minutes left to live and I was only sending metta to my husband? You know, and like, you know, that wouldn't be very seemly, so I'd better force myself you know, against all my instincts to somehow make believe you know, I'm sending metta to all beings everywhere. It wasn't like that. She just couldn't. And that, in fact, is what happens through the practice of loving-kindness. We change. So that the kind of limitations we held on to, the fears that governed us, they change. So that more often than not, we're coming from a place of connection, of care rather than the kind of constant self-preoccupation we have. It reminds me very much of my sense of, of the Dalai Lama and who he is. You know, most of us walk through the day, we go through the day pretty absorbed, you know. What do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they like me more than they've ever liked anyone ever before? Oh, I said a stupid thing. Oh, my God, they hate me. I can't believe that. They're always going to hate me, you know. And you contrast that to the Dalai Lama saying that he goes through life in a very different way, which is to say, you know, his quotation is, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. You know, so there's not that tremendous sense of self and other and us and them. What are they thinking? And it seems so natural. One doesn't get the feeling watching him that He's kind of sitting there thinking, oh my God, this person is so boring. And, you know, but I am the Dalai Lama. 
you know, so I better smile and act like they're interested, but I can't wait for them to go away, you know. It's not like that. It's like so deep in him, it's just who he is at this point. And um, it's in this light, I think one of my friends said when the Dalai Lama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, she said, giving the Dalai Lama a peace prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award. (laughs) You know, it becomes who we are. Practice brings us there. Insight brings us there. Realizing we might only have five minutes to live can bring us there. Opening up our vision of who we are can bring us there. So all of that is is part of that path of loving kindness. When I said earlier today that the Buddha taught the practice of loving kindness as the antidote to fear, it was very much in this sense. We are so habituated and accustomed to coming from a place of fear all of the time. But if we practice, even without great waves of feeling, just to get in a plug for that, (laughs) if we practice, things will change. So that without that kind of self-consciousness and contrivance and self-righteousness, we find that we're different. We're paying attention in a different way. The practice of metta, um, ironically enough, is often the kind of practice where you don't see the biggest changes sitting on the cushion. You tend to see them more quickly in life, like I did, you know, when I dropped that jar of something on the tile floor. So it's incredibly frustrating if you have the habit of checking your meditation practice every two minutes to see how it's going. (laughs) Because it's really just the training. It may be in you're dropping something or making a mistake or blurting something out that you'll notice you're somewhat kinder to yourself. It may be in an encounter with somebody else where you realize you have some more patience, that you are paying attention in a different way, that you're able to listen. That's where the proof really is. And so it takes a lot of faith, but it also relieves us of a great burden if we can just sort of dive into the practice and let it play itself out and not be constantly assessing and wondering and uh, trying to tinker with it you know, to make it work which we usually define as that great wave of feeling, which may not be there. Every time we gather our attention behind one of those phrases, we are practicing a wholeheartedness of attention, which is a very large component of metta itself. A friend of mine, when we were living in India, once uh, went to see this very great, uh, another Tibetan lama whose title was the Karmapa, This was the 16th Karmapa, who was living in Sikkim at the time. And my friend went off to see him. And then when he came back, he said that the Karmapa, who was very eminent and um, revered, really, greeted my friend as though his arrival there was just about the most important thing that had ever happened to him in his life. And believe me, it was not. And he said that the karmapa gave him that impression not through 
great pomp and circumstance or grandiose gestures, he gave him that impression by paying absolute, complete attention to him. Which my friend said, the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. And when he told me that story, I was, I was a little sad, actually, because I started thinking about how many times I am speaking to somebody and kind of half listening and half thinking about the next person I need to talk to or the next thing I need to do. And I realized, you know, it wouldn't take that much to just bring my attention back to gather it in, to be fully, wholly present. And that is like a gift of love that we give. We give it to ourselves, we give it to others, and that's the training. Gather your attention, shepherd it back. We learn in that simple act of meditation to begin again. That's no small thing in life. There are tremendous... Uh, values interwoven in that, the ability to forgive ourselves rather than chastise ourselves endlessly when we've made a mistake. The ability to align with the true nature of things, which is that it's really like a miracle that nothing is ruined. We can start over no matter what. Even if a situation can't be fixed, we can relate to it in a very different way. That nothing is static. Nothing is permanent. That's a really huge life lesson. You know, if you've never meditated before and you leave here and you run into your friends and they say, what happened? And you say, oh, I sat down, you know, I felt a few breaths, my mind wandered and I brought it back. An obvious response would be like, so what, you know? What's the big deal about that? But that's a huge thing. To be able to let go with some gentleness, to begin again and begin again and begin again, it changes how we live. So that's a big part of having metta, having uh, loving kindness for ourselves, and for others. To be able to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it and to hold that in the light of some tenderness. There's a, a very uh, kind of beautiful and powerful example in Tibetan Buddhist teaching where they say you should regard the thoughts that go through your mind as though you were a quite elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I just love that example because of all that's in there. You know, there's great perspective in there. You see like a a two-year-old kid break a shovel and freak out. And part of you knows it's just a shovel. It's okay, you know. This can be held in a bigger, wider perspective. But a part of you is so tender. You don't say to the kid, you jerk, (laughs) it's just a shovel, you know. You see that there's pain, there's suffering, there's loss there. So it's both the tenderness and caring side, 
and also the perspective, the wisdom side. That's how we can view what our experience is. That's what we are training in, to hold it all in a different way, in a different light. That doesn't mean our experience will flatten out. No more tension in our jaw, no more suffering, no more fear. That's unlikely. But it can be all different if we're not swept up in all of that association and all of that judgment and all of that solidification of ourselves. They say that there are two um, kind of preliminary reflections that support the experience of metta, which are a part of this uh, kind of understanding of how we use our attention. One is to look for the good in someone, and that includes ourselves. It is so easy to fixate on what we've done wrong and the mistakes we've made and what's not right that it almost takes a disciplined effort to give some equal airtime <laughs> to the good within us. If it was one time we were generous or one time it would have been so easy to tell a lie, but we didn't. Or, or whatever it might be, to really spend some time reflecting on that. And with others as well. Even if it's like one little sliver of good in an ocean of difficult behavior, it said we should spend a few moments and reflect on that good. Now, when I first heard this instruction, I was in Burma by then, you know, doing the um, intensive guided practice, to look for the good in people. And my first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. You know, they, they just go around looking for the good in people. And I don't even like people who are like that, just going around looking for the good in people. I don't like people like that. I'm not going to turn into a per- person like that. But then as I usually tell the story, I was very far from home. I was in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, don't feel like it, you know, not going to do it, you do it. So I did it. And it was so interesting because none of my fears were actually realized. I thought it was going to turn me into this really stupid, dull, Pollyanna kind of creature who wasn't going to be able to even notice what was wrong and I was just going to be shut down, and it wasn't like that at all. It was like, you know, I think we all know what it's like when we have somebody we care about, like a friend, who is not behaving very well. We can honestly and distinctly see what's wrong and how hurtful it is, but it isn't from this tremendous gulf of separation like that person has nothing to do with us. They're our friend. So they're both true. It's almost like we're seeing what's going on side by side instead of across that enormous distance. So we don't block it out and we don't deny it, but it's held in a different way. So to look for the good. And the other reflection, when that is just absolutely impossible, and sometimes it is, is... What I also mentioned earlier, that um, very simple statement of the Buddha's where he said, everybody wants to be happy. 
all beings everywhere want to be happy. And our problem is that we so rarely know how. But we're not so completely different from one another. We all want to feel at home in this body, in this mind. We don't want to feel afraid all the time. We want to feel a part of something greater than our limited sense of of who we are, but we don't know how. And so that urge, which in and of itself is quite wonderful, gets twisted and distorted and sometimes made incredibly awful by the force of ignorance. But it's ignorance that is really the obstacle. If we take a moment and look, we see we're not so completely different. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody is vulnerable to change, to suffering, to loss. How apart are we, actually? And so we use that understanding to help build our sense of what metta actually is. It's not the same clearly as fear, which has has us push away and shut down. You know, it's like the energetic opposite of fierce. It's about inclusion and being with. And it's also not the same as what is sometimes called in the Buddhist psychology uh, the near enemy, that state which is really close, but not really the same either. It's close enough so that one could get confused that the near enemy can uh, masquerade as the the actual state of something like metta, but it's really so very different when we take a look, when we understand. So the near enemy of metta said to be attachment is very close. But it's much more like that state, I will love you as long as. And so it, it most closely resembles what... Um, someone once described to me as metta with an edge. You know, like, may you be happy by tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, and may it look like this. And if it doesn't look like that, I'm very disappointed, you know. And, And I've sometimes, you know, in teaching so many retreats like this and in this particular technique, um, sometimes I'll then... run into somebody, say, in New York afterwards, and, and they'll say, well, you know... I spent that week up in Barry or month up in Barry or whatever, and you know, and I, I kept sending Meta to this friend of mine, and, and then I came home and I saw them, and they were no better than they were before, you know. And all I could think was, I gave you a week, you know, <laughs> like why aren't you better? But it's not about us, you know. It's not about being in control in that way. And attachment and control are very closely linked which we'll talk about, I'm sure, much more in the course of the retreat. So at the same time, it's easy to see that metta is not fear um, or anger. It also takes some time. You know, we need to be sensitive enough to see it's not the same as that kind of attachment. And of course we get attached in life. And that's a very natural thing. But we shouldn't be confused about what is what because they're really very different. 
we practice so that this state becomes not only real for us, but something we can abide in, something we can dwell in, something that becomes like our home. It's like home base. We're not always there by any means, but we all know what it feels like when we're home. You know, that's the place, hopefully, where we don't have to pretend to be somebody we're not and put on a big show and hide what's actually going on. That's a very precious and and wonderful sense of what it means to be at home. And so the force of metta, the, the sense, the awareness of metta, our connection to one another, our ability to connect to ourselves, becomes our home in the simplest and most natural way through actually doing the practice. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.